Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that it is the day that you have made, and because of that, we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for your word, that no matter what situation or experience or trial we're going through, it is always there. It is always there to give us a piece of wisdom, a piece of comfort, a piece of uh, correction, a piece of joy. Lord, we thank you that you breathed life into these words, that this is not just a book with words and pages, but it is life. It is what feeds our souls. It is what gives us strength. It is what empowers us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all these many gifts that you have given to us, just simply for being your children. So Lord, I pray that you bless our time together this morning as we look at your word, as we look at scripture and see what you have for us today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a 2015 BuzzFeed article, the author interviewed several famous atheists about finding meaning and purpose in life without religion. These are some of the, the quotes from this article. Now keep in mind, as you listen to each of these quotes, keep in mind what these ultimately boil down to. All right? Atheist evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne responded, The way I find meaning is the way most people find meaning, even religious ones, which is to get pleasure and significance from your job, from your loved ones, from your avocation, art, literature, music. People like me don't worry about what it's all about in a cosmic sense because we know it isn't about anything. It's what we make of this transitory existence that matters. Keep in mind what these ultimately boil down to. Journalist and broadcaster Robin Vinter responded, I try not to ache my brain too much about how vast the universe is and what life's all about. I think it's okay not to spend the time wondering what the point of human existence is. All I know is we're here and we might as well may, uh, not have a horrible time if we can help it. I do feel that life is ultimately pointless, but I honestly don't care. I'm just squeezing as much happiness out of it as I can for me and the people around me. My favorite one is this, from Alom Shaha, a physics teacher and author of The Young Atheist's Handbook. That exists. Yes, I, I, of course I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose, but the trick is to not wake up every morning and feel that way. Cognitive dissonance? Embrace it. Create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. And most importantly, find people you like and love and spend lots of time with them. I regularly have people over for dinner, throw parties for no reason, then I just want to spend time surrounded by the people I love. And if you're really stuck, eat rice and dal. Physically filling yourself with the food you love really does fill the emptiness you may feel inside. Do you notice what each of these responses really boiled down to when you stripped away all of the humanly tempting niceties? Just trying not to think about hard things in life and trying to chase after things that make you happy. That's what it all boiled down to, right? Does anyone here, anyone else here see the superficiality of this way of, of worldview, of looking at the world? What if your life is nothing but hard and painful experience one after another. 
And for some people, life is so hard and difficult and painful that eternity is the only thing they have to look forward to. Like we talked about last week, this idea of maximizing enjoyment and minimizing pain is nothing new. Humans like to think we're evolved in our way of, of viewing the world, but this idea is as old as humanity. We find that in ancient Near Eastern writings, and we find that in the writings of one of the richest men in history, as well as the wisest man in history, King Solomon. Last week we looked at Ecclesiastes 2, where Solomon recounts an experience in his life where he tried to find meaning in life by blowing tons of his immeasurable wealth on grand homes and gardens and women and coming up empty. He also tried to find meaning in life by working hard and enjoying the fruits of his labors. And guess what? That also left him empty. His conclusion was that everything in this life on earth was meaningless and was about as effective as chasing the wind. If we merely rely on our own human intelligence, that will always be the end conclusion. Meaningless and emptiness. It's no wonder then that most of the world's leading experts on anything are atheists. See, atheists like to shove that in, in the faces of people of faith, saying you have to be an idiot to believe in anything beyond them. Look at the highest intelligent people in the world, they say. If the most highly intelligent people in the world are atheists, how could anyone claim that there is a God? And that's the conclusion that anyone can come to if the extent of human intelligence and wisdom is the foundation. That's the only conclusion that anyone can come to. If the extent of human intelligence and wisdom is the foundation, then as Solomon discovered, as some, and as some of the most famous atheists conclude, our earthly lives are meaningless. They're pointless, and they're empty. That's the entire point that Paul brings out for us as we continue on in the same passage we started last week. We read last week in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the whole point of that is what follows in verse 19 and following, which we'll be taking a look at this morning. So the first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the message. And I want everybody to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look in the table of contents. That's fine. There's no shame in that. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. I want all of us to see this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And we read, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. As we did last week, uh, as we saw uh, last week, it connects back to what happens with humanity in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 11, here we are after God redeems the earth from the grievous and unchecked evil that had completely taken hold of the world by destroying it with a flood. Only one man named Noah and his family survived. God's next commandment to them was, go out and repopulate the whole earth again. That's what his very next commandment was. What was humanity's response? Nah, we're good right here. 
After God had not completely wiped out all of humanity and had spared a small portion, humanity's response was to build a pagan ziggurat, not in honor of God, but in honor of who? Themselves. God saw from a mile away what humanity relying on their own intelligence was going to result in once again, so he created the basis for all the many and varied languages of the earth. People, once banded together in their own collective intelligence and wisdom, were now forced to do exactly as what God commanded. Spread out from each other, find their own place, and repopulate the whole earth. Was this an act of bullying on God's part? Not at all. God already knew that the end result of human intelligence was unchecked evil. He already knew that was going to be the end result. This was another act of God's grace, sparing the earth from a hurtling degradation into evil at the fastest speed possible. See, a lot of modern atheists claim that they can be moral without the Bible. They can just take this and throw this in the trash can and still be moral. But here's the thing. If they even used their own worldview system of human intelligence, they would discover that their modern sense of Western morality is even beholden to the Bible. I recently watched a video interview of a well-known historian who, while may still not claim adherence to the Bible, was forced to draw a certain conclusion from looking at Western history. And his conclusion was this. If the Western world continued on the track that it was going on by way of the Roman Empire, the Western world as we know it, with its ingrained sense of morality, would be far more barbaric than it is now. Roman moral practices, especially as it pertained to human rights and human value, were woefully wanting. Basically, if you were a free member of Roman aristocracy, you could take advantage of and exploit anyone you wanted, granted they were an inferior social class. All of these morals of human rights and human value were born out of this. It didn't come from the Roman Empire. Rather, this historian concluded that we in the Western world are much more beholden to what was written and promoted in the Apostle Paul's letters than we like to admit. In other words, while modern atheists claim a certain code of morality, which they claim makes the Bible unnecessary, they actually prove the Bible's necessity to Western and therefore even atheists' morality. That's the wisdom of humanity in a nutshell right there. It is useless and it is pointless. Therefore, just like with the Tower of Babel event in Genesis, God had to destroy the wisdom of the so-called wise and not even take into consideration the cleverness of the most clever philosophers known to man. The way to humanity's purpose cannot be found in anything a human has come up with. It can only be God's creation. As has been pointed out by a biblical scholar, verse 19 is a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. In that context, God is condemning Jerusalem because its people have traded a heart close to God with only empty words and rituals. That would only ever be the height of humanly based Jewish wisdom. A heart close to God would be in tune with his heart and plan, found in part in the symbolism of the whole Jewish temple and sacrificial system. 
Those who were a part of our evening Exodus series know that every single part of the sacrificial system and construction of the tabernacle pointed to the salvation and redemption from sin by the death and resurrection of a deliverer and in some symbols, God himself. If one was close to God's heart, he or she would know that the end of end all would never be found in the Jewish law. But even God's own people, the ones Paul would remark in Romans, were the ones entrusted with the very revelations of Almighty God. The extent of human wisdom based simply on the law was not enough. In other words, God destroyed every human institution of wisdom, even His own people's, to make good on what He had planned from the very beginning. What God always had in mind, even before He created the universe, was a way to purpose that was simply unachievable through human intelligence and wisdom. And that's what leads us to verse 20. As we read, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, each of these rhetorical questions is meant to target each height of human intelligence and existence at this point of Paul writing this passage. Where is the wise man was meant to target the greatest pagan and Gentile Greek philosophers. Paul was writing in the mid-first century, so this would have included all the greats, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and even Epicurus with his system of philosophical hedonism. That is a worldview based on achieving pleasure and mitigating pain through the accumulation of knowledge. He thought he was better than the regular hedonists by claiming it was philosophical. A lot, of, a, a lot of modern atheistic scientists are really just modern adherents of Epicureanism, whether they like it or not. That of attempting to find purpose, if not meaning, in the accumulation of the knowledge of the world and universe around them. But the message of the cross... That is, salvation and therefore meaning found only in the death and resurrection of Jesus renders all of the ancient Greek philosophy, no matter how wise it sounds, empty. The Corinthians and Achaia, while Roman in politics, were foundationally Greek in philosophy and culture. The Western world can thank Alexander the Great and his program of Greek culture and language spreading through military conquest. Paul next rhetorically asks, where is the scribe or where is the scholar, depending on your version. This was meant to target the proponents of Judaism and the Jewish law as their foundation. The scribe of Jewish law was highly revered in his knowledge of the law. Who were mostly the ones challenging Jesus in his knowledge and adherence to the Jewish law? The Pharisees and the scribes. This goes back to that quote from Isaiah that Paul already referenced. While some Jewish people wouldn't necessarily remember the context of that verse, who would remember the context of that verse? Those scribes. No matter how much the scribes held on to how well they knew and could interpret the Jewish law, a.k.a. the extent of human Jewish intelligence, it still wasn't enough to understand God's purpose for humankind and the required salvation from sin that made that possible. Lastly, Paul rhetorically asks, where is the debater of this age? 
This reference has its roots in the Greek philosophers, but more so how it came out in oratorical debate, which has more to do with the Romans. Philosophy only went so far in some minds. It was how well one could communicate its wisdom in public debate that made the difference. Paul used his vehicle to communicate the gospel to the philosophical and debating Greeks on Mars Hill in Athens, but he only used it as an instrument to communicate his message. The gospel message itself was not rooted in oratorical debate. It couldn't be, for it could only be rooted in God's wisdom and not in man's, how well man could communicate it. While that might look like a weakness, it's actually the gospel's strength. Because it's based on God's wisdom, it will never be disproven. It will never go extinct. It will never be reasoned out of. God has provided several people throughout the ages to go head-to-head with atheists to still provide a completely coherent defense of the gospel. That doesn't mean that it will change any minds, but it can and will always be able to be defended. This brings Paul to, conclu- to, to his concluding rhetorical question. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? In reality, that rhetorical question remains the conclusion for humanity, even right up to this point in human history. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, this is what differentiates biblical Christianity from every other worldview, belief, or seemingly lack thereof. One biblical scholar summed it up perfectly in this quote. It is not self-confident erudition, but self-effacing faith that allows one to enter the narrow way. Islam promotes that if you follow the five pillars of the religion and seek to please Allah with the things you do, you will enter paradise. Judaism promotes that if you follow the Jewish law, you know, as best as you can anyway, you will enter paradise. Buddhism promotes that if you deny yourself earthly pleasures and focus on meditation, you can achieve the greatest pleasure of wisdom. Hinduism promotes that if you do enough good in the life that you have, you can earn being reincarnated into something better in the next life. New Ageism promotes that if you tap into the universe's power, you can lead a meaningful life. Simply conventional Western religion, or as I like to call it, lazy man's religion, promotes that if you're just generally good enough, enjoy this life, you're going to heaven anyways. Even renowned atheistic theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking was quoted in a Time magazine article written on the date of his death on March 14, 2018, saying, Remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Hawking said of the meaning of life, Be curious, and however difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. All of these religions and philosophies promote one thing and one thing only, an adherence for whose sake? My sake. For self's sake. Even Hawking's quote about the meaning of life, while sounding inspiring on the surface, is the very definition of erudition or the accumulation of knowledge based on self. That is, a personal desire to make sense of this universe for one's own purposes. 
Here's what it all boils down to, just as Paul clearly points out in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God did not make the way to himself, and therefore the meaning of life accessible through the accumulation of knowledge based on human intelligence. That is not the way that he did it. It was founded on faith. Not blind faith, but faith nonetheless. At some point, no matter how much you learn, the leap must be taken to faith, no matter how much discovery of evidence about God's existence has been made. See, that flies in the very face of human intelligence. That's what makes it the very human definition of foolishness. It means that no matter how much humankind discovers about the universe and can prove through the scientific method or can philosophize about through human wisdom, humanity will never find God on its own. It will never find God on its own. God designed it to be that way. God designed it to be that he was the one to reach out to humanity through the, sacrifice, through the sacrifice and resurrection of himself. That's the way he designed it to be. So the next time you hear somebody say, belief in Jesus makes no earthly sense, you can tell them exactly. That's the point. That's the way God designed it. God has made that abundantly clear throughout the scriptures and especially right here in verses 22 through 23. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And that's what brings us to the method of the message. Why the method of giving this foolish message is also foolish according to the world. Let's face it, the gospel is not glamorous. It's just not. And the way that God designed for it to be spread is not glamorous. It's not fascinating. It's not entertaining. It's not mind-blowing when it comes to humans. That's why John Edwards, who claims to communicate with the dead, Chris Angel with his illusions, and commonplace psychics are so popular. They fascinate. They make us wonder, how in the world did they do that? They fascinate us. Now granted, signs and wonders can still take place in remote places in the world where the gospel presence has not yet taken root. But as we've even been talking about in youth group, miracles and signs are not the point in and of themselves. They're always meant to point to the gospel. That's what they're always meant to do. Jesus rebuked his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters because they were only interested in the signs he performed. They wanted more bread and fish. They weren't interested in why he was doing them, that is, in pointing them to the fact that he was their Messiah and must die for them. They were only interested in what his miracles could do for them. Again, it was a focus on what? On self. Just as the Greek philosophers were interested in. Greek philosophers, just as Hawking promoted, sought to understand the universe and its meaning for themselves. That's why there were so many competing schools of philosophy. One guy taught one thing and one guy taught another. Their philosophies were all based on what they personally discovered. 
about life. The main and glaring difference Paul declares here in verse 23 is that the only basis believers in Jesus have for their entire worldview is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only basis that we have for our worldview. That's all we have and that's all we must have. That's it. There's nothing more than that. But that in and of itself is even a huge stumbling block to the Gentile world, as we read in these verses, because it simply cannot be arrived at through human wisdom, discovery, or experience. It must be believed. That's what, it, that's what must happen. Of course there is biblical evidence being unearthed all the time by archaeologists and, and evidence for God being discovered by science all the time. But at the heart of biblical Christianity, there is the core belief and understanding that we as humans cannot come to God on our own. And we never will. Our sin separates us. And because of that, our eyes cannot be opened to the things of God on our own. They must be opened for us. Biblical Christianity understands that at the heart of our faith, it all begins and ends with God. It's not based on ourselves. Nowhere does it have anything to do with us except we were the ones to supply the sin that required the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. It's not based on how much wisdom we can gain or how good we can be. It is only based on God reaching out to us, sacrificing himself for us, and then breaking the physical laws of the universe by rising again from the dead. That is why, as Paul points out in verse 23, the Gentiles and the rest of the world, even today, see the gospel as utter and irrevocable foolishness. On the other hand, it is a stumbling block to the Jewish community. Why? As one biblical scholar pointed out, while not as apparent to those living in Corinth, in Judea, crucifixion was the lowest form of execution available in that society. It was reserved for slaves and those who rebelled against the Roman Empire. In fact, the cross was so connected to rebellion against Rome that it was seen by the Judean Jewish community as the epitome of the symbol of Roman repression. That's what the cross symbolized to them. The epitome of Roman occupation, Roman oppression, and Roman repression of their land. It was therefore not this innocuous symbol that was just appropriated by the early Christians. The cross was already connected to something. It was already connected to symbolism. It was just hated symbolism at that point. That's why it was a stumbling block for the Jewish community. They already hated the symbol of the cross. Why on earth would the Jewish community revere the symbol of the cross and consider it the very basis for the restoration of God? That would have been a very, very difficult thing for them to overcome culturally. Besides that, as has been noted by one biblical scholar, the Jewish people knew what Deuteronomy 21-23 said. The body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must body, bury the body that same day for anyone who is hung on a tree, is cursed in the sight of God. They knew the law already said that. 
Therefore, in their minds, the Jewish community regarded anyone crucified or hung on a tree to be cursed by God. That certainly didn't match up with their anticipation of the anointed one, did it? And that was the entire point. Jesus had taken upon himself the curse of humanity's sin and the sin itself as he hung upon that cross in order to put that to death. So God took a symbol that was hated for its connection to repression and made it a symbol to be loved for its connection to redemption. Because of that, it was, for both those who were Jewish and those of Gentile background, verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross proved that Jesus was who he said he was. That he was the Messiah who fulfilled the prophecies of the suffering servant and of being crucified and rose again fulfilling the prophecy about not seeing the decay of death. As Paul notes here, Jesus, look at that in verse 24, Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. So, you want to know wisdom? It's not a journey. It's not a process. It's not even an accumulation of knowledge as every other philosophical or religious system promotes. Rather, if you want to know wisdom, you don't get to know more things. You get to know someone. That's how you get more wisdom. You get to know the embodiment of wisdom, Jesus himself. Faith in Jesus is not self-promoting. It has nothing to do with self. It's not self-earning or about self-accumulating. It's not even self-centered. It's entirely based on love towards Jesus for what he's already done for us, what he's already won for us. We seek to please him not to earn our way to heaven because that's already been won for us. We seek to please him with our lives simply out of our love for him and what he's already done for us. There's nothing self-promoting or self-centered about that. Likewise, we don't seek more and more knowledge of God just to feel smarter or feel more self-confident or find some kind of meaning. We seek more and more knowledge of God in order to expand our love for Him and therefore to know how to serve Him better and serve and love our fellow human beings better. In the same way, the power of God in Jesus, proven by the cross, is not what those who follow New, new Ageism like to misconstrue it as, it as. The power of God in Jesus is not being able to tap into God's power in order to feel stronger, more confident, or more understanding. Rather, the power of God in Jesus is received through the exact opposite. A humbling of ourselves desiring for God to change us from who we are right now and into the likeness of Jesus. It's the exact opposite. Again, not for our own ability to feel better about ourselves, but knowing that that's God's goal for us, to make us holy, to make us into the image of his Son. The power by which that's done was opened up through the cross. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on us, again, 
not for us to be proud about, but for God's transformation of us, for the exact opposite, for knowing that we need to be changed, and God is changing us through the Holy Spirit. The rest of our lives, therefore, is focused on humility, humbling and sacrificing ourselves to God on a daily basis in order for him to transform us and empower us to do our will, his will, not our own. That completely flies in the face of everything else. The byproduct of that humility before God, ironically, is experiencing our purpose and fulfillment. It's ironic, but it's the truth. The cross is the foundation for anything good we can enjoy in this life. We can enjoy them because we know God has given them to us to enjoy. This is what separates faith in Jesus from the way the world thinks. The enjoyment isn't the meaning itself. The underlying foundation of our salvation gives the enjoyable things in this life meaning beyond just mere happiness. Our salvation and relationship with God through Jesus makes even the good things mean the most they can mean in this life. In all of this, we cannot help but see what Paul concludes this section with, verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Obviously, Paul is not advocating that there is foolishness or weakness to be found anywhere in God, but rather, according to one biblical scholar, he is utilizing the accepted literary device known as irony to illustrate his point. Even if God did have foolishness or weakness within himself or within his plan, it would still be wiser and stronger than anything any human can come up with. That puts any human achievement done without regard to God or even in spite of God or especially in defiance of God to shame. Even the greatest human achievements are petty in comparison to the wisdom and power of God. That gives us confidence in our God. No matter what anyone else advocates or seeks to disprove or mocks about our God, we know this. And this is what we're going to close our time with this morning. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And to that, as one body, we can declare, Amen. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that it gives us a completely different, completely radical, completely changed way of looking at the world and way of looking at our eternity than anything else the world has to offer. Anything else the world has to offer is based on self. And Lord, thank you that your faith in you through your Son is not based on self because we would all be hopeless. Lord, we thank you that it is based completely on you and what you have done for us. And with that, we can take that confidence into this world. We thank you that we are confident in what you are doing in each and every one of our lives. And we thank you that we can be confident of our eternity. 
And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we...